What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I think that with the pandemic and with what's going on in the world, it's one of these defining moments where we end up defining what do we stand for and how do we show up? And I think as a company and as a leader, it's something to really consider and to be thoughtful about. And I think for our team, one of the things that they are going to remember is how is it that I made them feel or how is it that the company made them feel during this time? And so I've tried to really reflect on what is it that I can do to help support them and then how can we continue to grow the business. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin, and you're listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. Today's episode Be a Transparent Leader During Times of Uncertainty. It's been more than three months since the economy in this country all but ground to a halt. We all hoped that businesses would get back to some semblance of normalcy, but after these past weeks of COVID-19 spikes in states like Arizona, Texas, and Florida, it's clear that that uncertainty isn't going anywhere. On each episode of this show, we've talked about how founders are handling this crisis. There have been a lot of tough decisions, from mass furloughs to pay cuts, and even pivots to new avenues of production and revenue. The only thing that is certain right now is that leadership has never been more needed. And that's what I talked about with today's guest. She's founder and CEO of KiwiCo, Sandra O. Lin. We discussed the importance of transparency in leadership. But first, I asked her about how she became a founder. Early in her career, she worked at Procter & Gamble before becoming a director at PayPal and a general manager at eBay. She had a glowing and intense career, and it was never on her intended path to start her own company. But at the time, my two older kids were almost three, almost five. I wanted to give them exposure to hands-on activities. I saw it as a great way for them to exercise their creativity, hopefully see themselves as makers and creators. Um, So I started to pull these activities together. I think part of it was I grew up doing a lot of hands-on activities myself. um, And I'm an engineer by training. And it was something that was important for me to provide as as for my kids. So I started to pull these activities together. And it was quite a bit of work. So I thought I'd amortize that by inviting my friends and their kids over. And I mean, I think that these days, and, and in general, you know, what we've found is that parents are really well intentioned. They're incredibly busy. They want enriching activities for their kids. And if it can come to them in a convenient format from a brand that they can trust, then that's something that is compelling to them. And so um, we found that that's the case in general. And then during these times in particular, where it's important to keep kids engaged and learning and, and having fun while parents are looking for something that might save their sanity 
a little bit um, as they're as they're trying to teach their kids from home. Um, we happen to be a, a decent solution for them. So before we get too much further, Sandra, why don't you tell me um, what the original idea for your company was and what exactly a Kiwi Crate is? Yeah, so it really stems from this vision around having kids see themselves as innovators and basically giving them both the tools and the skills to see themselves as those creators as well as the mindset. So how do we build creative confidence in kids? Um, And so what we do is we design and we deliver hands-on projects for kids. So think engineering projects, science experiments, games that they make and play, projects that encourage artistic expression, et cetera. And our main business is we send it as a subscription. So every month the child receives something that's delightful and engaging and hopefully also encourages some learning along the way. Yeah. And this is kids of all ages these days, right? You started out with uh, the Kiwi Crate, which was um, ages, I believe, what, five to eight? Yeah. Eight. Yes. Okay. And then now now it's kids from, you know, birth through, you know, I I think some of the crates would be fine for me to to do at my age. Um, But so when you started out, it was just it was just one box, one. Was it a subscription right away? Tell me a little bit about the model you set out to to build at first. Mm -hmm. It was a subscription right away. And part of that was built off of our understanding of what parents wanted. Um, So they were looking for something that was really convenient and something that could expose their children to different topics in different areas. And so the way to do that, we thought, was to provide a subscription model. And we knew that this could be something that would be delightful and fun for the entire family to receive on a monthly basis. So we started with Kiwi Crate, um, like you said, for early elementary schools. Um, kids. And then we evolved in, in 2014. We launched three additional lines. So Tinker Crate, Doodle Crate for a little bit older, and then Koala Crate for preschoolers. So going a little bit younger there. And then more recently, we launched four additional lines. So you're right. We go basically from birth all the way through to what we like to call kids at heart. So you and me. And we cover all different topics. And again, just based on that idea of getting hands-on can really encourage um, everyone to think of themselves as creators and producers and not just passive consumers. And what about from the business model side at the start? Let's talk about how it kind of worked um, in terms of revenue and funding. Right. We knew that as a product-based e-commerce business, that it would require a fair amount of capital to get started. So we did raise a seed round of financing of $2 million. And then we also raised a Series A. So all in, we raised a little north of $10 million. Um, from there, though, you know, and even really since the inception of the company, we've been very disciplined about the way that we run the company. Um, we are very, very willing to experiment, but we also don't tend to be the kind of company that chases growth at all costs. Um, and so when you look at our relative acquisition costs, we really have kept that very much in check. And we've been very fortunate to see a lot of our acquisition come organically as well. So ever since the very beginning of 2016, we've been profitable. 
um, and we've been cash flow positive. So we've been able to fund our own growth since then. That's amazing. And you took just, it was just a total of about $10 million. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yep. So a yeah, speed of about great. two and the series A was a little north of eight. Yeah. Yeah. And so that makes you feel and, and seem a little bit different than some of your, your Silicon Valley peers, you know, down the road. Um, when you, Was that a goal from the outset for you? I think one of the goals that we had, so in the very, very beginning of uh, when we started the company and we actually raised our seed round of financing, I remember talking to our lead investor and one of the questions that they asked was around what does success look like? And success can take so many different forms. And I'm sure people have many, many different answers. But for me, the answer was really around how do we build a great brand and a great company? Like to me, that's what success looked like. And of course, we take very seriously our responsibility and it's in our duties when it comes to our investors, our employees, our customers, et cetera. But I felt like if we kept our eye on that particular goal, other things would follow. Um, and so when you think about sustainable businesses, it was important to us. And it was important to me that we build a sustainable brand. And I think that inherently helped us really think about how to manage the company in a way that was disciplined. And as a result, kind of we are where we are now. So let's back up a little bit, Sandra. 2014 was a really big year for you. Um, tell me about the company's mindset going into that expansion. So as we were entering 2014, we had one line. So we had Kiwi Crate really geared for early elementary school kids. And we knew based on customer surveys, feedback, et cetera, that the line was something that was resonating with folks. And we also saw it obviously in the performance of the business. But we also recognized that there was more to do when it came to addressing folks who had kids of older age children as well as younger age children. And so we decided in 2014 to launch three new lines and really approached it as let's get these out and let's learn from it. If one of these lines actually ends up taking off, we'll double down, invest in that particular line and go from there. And so we ended up launching Koala Crate for preschoolers, Dual Crate for uh, basically tweens, um, and Tinker Crate for later elementary school tweens as well. Um, Doodle Crate about art and design and Tinker Crate about science and engineering. And what we ended up finding at the end of 2014 is all the lines did well. So we actually sold out during the holidays. It was a massive scramble for the team and ended up deciding that we would be investing in all three because they they really resonated with the community and with customers um, in a pretty big way. Yeah. Did you have to hire up? How did you have to adjust the company based on that? Yeah, we we did have to hire up at that point. And what I have to say, I have to commend the team that in 2014, when we decided to launch the three lines, we really did it with the same crew that we had for one line. And so it was amazing how people buckled up and really tried to make that happen. And I think that it was also very rewarding to see it actually go out into the market and be something that was compelling. But from there, we knew that it was not sustainable (laughs) to keep it the way that it was set up and the way that it was resourced. So we did grow the team at that point. 
So speaking of speaking of your team, um, there it's sort of another way that you don't match with your Silicon Valley neighbors, these these fast-growing other companies all around you. Uh, the last time we talked, I know that your workforce was some 70% female. Um, you're also a so- solo female founder. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and whether that's been a deliberate uh, move on your part, the composition of the workforce? I think at this point, our composition is about 60% female and 40% male. And in terms of the actual composition, we are, you know, we basically try to hire the best person for the given role. And one of the things that we're looking at really actively now um, is actually taking a look at our pipeline, taking a look at our hiring practices and seeing what more we can do to actually encourage additional diversity um, on the team. And so that's something that I think we can do much better. And I'm looking forward to some of the changes that we plan to implement there. Has this the last couple of weeks been a time where you've given more thought to this? I mean, I know sort of everyone is, but Silicon Valley in particular does does have a diversity problem. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I think that this is a time that a lot of people are reflecting um, and recognizing the systemic issues and inequality um, in the world. And so for us, we have reflected as a company around what we want to do around it. And so I think it really comes down to three buckets. You know, one is internally, what are we doing for the team? Um, What's the employee experience? As we look at hiring and like I said, our, our funnel of potential candidates, I think it's something that we really do need to take a close look at and do better. Um, I think in the second bucket would be what are we putting out into the world? So if we look at our product, if we look at our content, we look at our marketing assets, um, and what are we saying to the community um, through those things? And so we're basically taking a look at those and, and figuring out how we can be much more intentional around that. And then the third area that I would describe is just looking at things externally. Um, so kind of on a, on a macro perspective, um, something that might be a little bit closer is looking at our partnerships. Who do we partner with? And then also thinking about how can we support others um, around this particular cause. And so like other companies, we've made financial donations to organizations that we think are doing amazing work. And I think the question is, what more can we do? And like like many others, we're we're still in the process of learning and listening. And I think that that's something that's going to be ongoing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what uh, on top of those things, I guess, or in addition, what what advice would you have for the broader Silicon Valley ecosystem that's so dependent on these these systems of venture capital, which are just you know historically very male, very white? Um, and how do we? I mean, how does the broader ecosystem adapt and and do better? I think one of the things that can be somewhat paralyzing is if you think about it from that perspective, that you need Mm -hmm. to be the one to actually change the ecosystem. And so what I would actually encourage is to say, what is it that I can do and what is the change that I can actually influence and what can we do as a company? And so I think that by starting there, those things will make a tangible difference. And then we can also take a look at, are there things that we can do that are more that actually then influence kind of the macro level. But if each person or each organization takes a careful look at that, 
I have to believe that there is going to be some real change that's going to happen. Oh, absolutely. And and I think that, you know, what you're saying about partnerships as well is is really important. And I think that that can cause some ripples that are that are significant. What was one of the most significant challenges that you found in the years of building KiwiCo? So one of the challenges actually is linked to your question around 2014. And so the company was doing well. We saw some nice traction with KiwiCrate, but we also knew that we wanted and needed to see additional growth in the business. And so as we launched those three new lines, it was a real bet for the company. And the question is whether or not that bet would pay off. And I think what's very interesting is if you look at the action that we took in 2014 and the fact that we launched those three new lines, you can directly draw a line to when we became profitable in the beginning of 2016. And so what we found is some of the things that we thought would be true did actually happen. So obviously we grew our addressable market we were able to provide a solution to a bigger set of parents and kids. And so that was really great. But the other thing we were able to do is because we had uh, different lines that really focused on science and engineering or early childhood development, we were able to test a lot of different types of marketing, creative and messages. And what we found is certain ones really resonated and they pulled folks in to self-select into whatever line really made sense for them. So let's say somebody saw a Tinkercrate ad, they would come into the fold and then self-select into Koala Crate if they had a preschooler. And that actually made our marketing spend a lot more efficient. So that was really, really something that was important when you looked at the economics of the business. And then the other thing that we found is that the majority of U.S. households actually have more than one child. And so as we took a look at our cost profile and the fact that at the time when we launched over 20% of our shipments starting to have more than one crate going out in a given shipment, we were able to amortize the shipping costs, which is actually pretty considerable when you look at the unit economics. So a lot of things started to really work at that time. And we were very fortunate to be able to, you know, we look back now and we say, you know, that was really an important inflection point for us. Yeah, that sounds like um, a big risk to take, but one that, you know, clearly started to pay off right away. Um, what did you learn from that? I think one of the things that we really learned from that, and it's something that's actually a part of the company in general, is a willingness to try things and to experiment and to make kind of calculated bets. Um, and so that's something that we continue to do and continue to kind of iterate upon. And so even as we were launching some of our new lines, we're always paying attention to how can we make things better? Is this actually resonating? Is this paying off? Um, and so I think that's something that has always been a part of the company. It's kind of part of the culture. It's part of who we are. And I think it's something that we encourage in a lot of different ways in which we actually run and we manage the business. Interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about that, how to encourage that, that flexibility and that willingness to change your existing product through every level of the company? How do you as a leader um, encourage that sort of behavior? So I think some of the things that we really look at when we um, think about encouraging change and encouraging experimentation is providing some room to one, be really creative. Um, and so it's really comes from ideas 
that our employees at the team is going to come up with to putting things out there in concept format to start. So how is it that we can take these steps in order to understand whether or not these things are going to resonate with the community? And so even when we launch those three new lines or anytime we launch a new line, we start with what we call concept testing. And we go out to the community with the idea and the nugget of what we think is going to be interesting. And then from there, we prototype and we start to put things out into the market in order to see if they are actually things that are going to take off. And so I think it's having kind of that framework for experimentation and testing and learning, and then also having kind of the mindset where we encourage it and people feel like it's okay to put things out there and then to learn at any point in the process that it's not going to work and not be kind of penalized around it, but actually to be um, kind of uh, praised in a way or, you know, celebrating. And from there, we can actually build upon what they've learned. When we come back, I'll talk with Sandra about leadership during the pandemic. But first, a quick break. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Let's talk more about uh, the effects of the pandemic. It's been a few months now, and um, I'm curious how back in March you started to adapt the company to to what you were hearing and um, the, the actual effects of COVID-19. Yeah, as we were seeing the effects of the pandemic and we started to shelter in place, I think that the ways in which we responded and the ways in which I thought about how we should respond were centered on, around a couple of different things. So one was thinking about um, how do we support the team and how do we support the community? And so I can, I can go into these in a little bit more detail, but I would say that was really a big area for us, um, especially as we were looking at different policies, as we were looking at working remotely, and then for our community, it was really about uh, how can we support parents and kids during this time where all of a sudden they are learning from home. What can we do to help? So there was that piece of it. And then I would say the, the second and third pieces were really about how to evolve as a, as a leader and what is it that I could be doing to really, you know, going back to the idea of um, being supportive to the company, um, meaning the team, as well as the community. And what is it that I needed to do to help others um, during this challenging time? And then also thinking about the business. So thinking about like, what are the different scenarios that we should be planning for? What do we think is going to happen? What is going to be the impact to the business? Um, that was kind of the third area that I was, that I was focused on. Yeah, let's let's talk about the the leadership aspect first. Um, how did you step up as a leader, and and how did you reassure your teams? So I think that it was 
for everyone a really challenging time, right? So we had a period of a lot of uncertainty. We were getting a lot of information and we continue to do that, right? There's a, there's a lot of data and information that was coming at us. A lot of fear and I would say a certain level of turmoil. And so I think the question at that point was, how is it that I can help the team feel more secure? How can I give them kind of the facts in a most, in a direct way, but also in an empathetic way? And how do we do that so that then they can become more productive? Because I didn't see any way that somebody could be productive or creative without feeling a level of um, kind of security um, and being on more kind of solid footing. And so the question was, what could I do and what could the company do to help people get there? And so to begin with, what I did is um, really amplified my communications. And I tend to be the kind of person who likes to have things all wrapped up um, and kind of tied in a bow <laughs> before I present something. And so when it comes to the broader team, I hadn't really shared much about my thinking or my process. And given the situation with the pandemic, I knew that I needed the team to feel connected and feel focused. And so I really started to communicate a lot more often. And I started to communicate more about how I was feeling and the process in which we were making certain decisions. And I think that was something that felt like it was a real stretch for me as a leader, but I think something that was good. It kind of forced me to do that. I think when we were in an office together, I would wrongly assume that people would know <laughs> what I was thinking sometimes, and that somehow through osmosis <laughs> in the office that that would get picked up. Um, and so I became very, very deliberate about my communications. I knew that it was one channel that people would actually be reading and would really be paying attention to. And it was important. Um, it was important to them to know where I stood and where the company stood around things. So I'd say that was a big one was around communication. And another big one was around listening. Um, and so two, three weeks into sheltering in place, I made it a point to meet with everybody on the team. So we have roughly 130 folks on the team now. And I did it in groups of six, seven people at a time. And I actually would do this when we were in, in the office. We used to call them tea times. And tea times were all about people in the company coming together in small groups with me. And then they could ask me questions. And I would do my best to answer those questions. Well, we really turned that on its head. And these group discussions that we had were about listening. And so there are basically two questions that I was asking. One is, how are you doing? And two was, how can I and how can the company support you? And so I think the listening was really important and it continues to be really important because we needed to understand where people were at so we could do a better job of supporting them and then helping them be productive. So that was another way in which, you know, kind of it changed what we used to do um, in response to what was actually happening. 
Yeah. How did how did that come to you that that strategy and that that sort of communication in a in a more transparent way, being more yourself, being more maybe vulnerable and and also listening to your employees? How did you kind of open up in that way and realize that you had to do that um, during this crisis? I didn't think that in this crisis, the type of leadership that would resonate is something that would be someone remaining stoic or someone who demonstrated, frankly, what I think would have been viewed as false strength. Um, And so I I thought that it was important to really um, be able to demonstrate that level of empathy and caring and support that I have for the team, but maybe have not expressed as much of before. Um, And then to be responsive to what I heard. Um, And so, as we were listening, as I was listening to the team, you know, we did do certain things in response to that. And so, for example, um, after that set of initial discussions, we ended up implementing um, additional days off, kind of wellness days. So everybody in the company ended up getting three wellness days to be able to take time for themselves, um, for example. And so, you know, it was something that I think is this time, while it is challenging, I think it is a real opportunity for leaders to grow and to evolve um, and hopefully project some level of authenticity that maybe they hadn't before. And I've certainly found that to be the case. And you were able, were you able to keep all of your employees on, um, on the same schedule um, and continue to create the, the same products that you have been and get your crate, get the crates shipped out on a regular schedule? <laughs> From a scheduling perspective, I think the thing that we had to really get used to is this idea of asynchronous work getting done. Um, so we had not done a lot of remote work before the pandemic. Um, and so it was something that was an adjustment for the team and it had to be done because there are people who were parents who had to deal with children's schedules and remote learning. Um, There were people who had to support maybe their parents who were elderly. I mean, everybody was in a different situation. I think the key thing was that we needed everyone to be empathetic to others' situations Um, and then to learn how to work asynchronously. Just so to say, we don't have to be on at the same time necessarily, um, except for at maybe very specific touch points. And we're still going to be able to move this work forward. Tell me how it's been going since you've actually had like a really huge surge in interest, right? Yeah. <laughs> Over the past few months. And how have you been how have you been dealing with that? One of the things that we recognized from the start is that we were in a position to actually help families and kids. And so the first weekend that we started sheltering in place, we ended up um, as a team coming together and creating a resource hub for parents around kids being at home and learning from home. So we pulled together all kinds of content and resources to be helpful as well as kid-friendly explanations around what was going on. So the science of hand-washing or how do viruses spread and exponential growth and, and that type of thing. Oh, that's so smart. Yeah. So that was something that really, um, it resonated very well when we sent the email out to the community. And from there, what we decided to do is we're now pulling together Camp KiwiCo. So again, 
we have a lot of resources, we have content that we feel like we can share with a broader community. And so we're pulling that together in three different sessions of camp for kids of all ages. And we're very intentionally making that something free for folks. I mean, if they want, they can purchase the crate that goes along with it for additional hands-on fun. But again, we want to do something that could hopefully be helpful to kids and families during the summer because the summer looks very different from summers before. So in that way, you know, we've we've been able to respond and, and hopefully be helpful to the community. In terms of other things that have changed for the business, we have been fortunate, very, very fortunate in that we are providing something that can be helpful for kids and parents during this time. Um, but we've also seen some things that are definitely challenging too. Um, so as we take a look at impact to shipping times or, or taking a look at certain impact to supply chain, um, those are things that the team has had to respond to. And I think they've been doing really a nice job of trying to get ahead of that, being very thoughtful and proactive about the problems and issues that might arise and trying to get ahead of those. Um, so we've been really fortunate in that we've been able to continue to operate pretty much as we had been before. That's great. And I mean, has there been growth as well? I mean, will you look back at, at 2020 as being an, another inflection point for the company? I mean, I think that's TBD at this point. Um, I think that, yes, we've seen some growth because of, of the fact that um, parents and kids are looking for these these fun activities to do um, at home and enriching activities to do. So we've definitely seen some growth there. But we'll see what happens. You know, I mean, I would assume, um, like many others, that we will see some type of an economic downturn as well. And I think there's a question of what does that actually look like and how prolonged will that be? Um, so I, I think everything is fluid um, at this point. And so there's a need to be flexible. There's a need to be nimble. And we will have to see what happens. Thank you so much, Sandra, for for being with us today. Thank you. I really appreciate the time. After speaking with Sandra, what really stuck with me is that she took a moment of crisis for her company and for the world and used it to look inside herself. Not at all the troubles surrounding her, but rather to examine her own leadership style and to question it. She asked herself, is what I've been doing working? She came to realize she was wrong in some of the assumptions she'd made, such as that team members would just know what she was thinking about any given decision. And she changed. She embarked on a more communicative style of leadership infused with listening and empathy. She met with every team member virtually and listened. The company made real changes to its workflow and schedules due to what she learned. And through the process, she became not just a more deliberate communicator, but also a more open, genuine, transparent, and empathic leader. That's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. Since we're just starting out, we'd love it if you could please subscribe to What I Know wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you could recommend us to a friend. 
or help to recommend us to a lot more people by leaving your rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Your thoughts really do help other people who'd love this podcast find us. You can also drop us a note anytime at whatiknowatinc.com. Let us know what you think about genuine heartfelt leadership. Also, who would you like to hear me interview next? Our producer, who currently is struggling to construct a balsa wood trebuchet from a kit, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio-Chapkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know. Thank you.